Kids, I hope you all have a great time. And if you're in here, if you're sticking with us, would you please grab a copy of God's Word? Now, here's when I say that, I recognize the day and age we live in. You may not have a physical copy of God's Word. That's okay. All right, uh, grab your phone and open the app or go to the webpage or whatever and look at John chapter three. So whether you got a physical Bible or a digital Bible, look at John chapter three, that's where we're going to be at. Uh, as I said at the beginning, right, there's a verse in here that we're really familiar with, right? John chapter three, verse 16, and most of us can quote it without really even thinking about it. Well, it comes in the midst of a story that most of us are probably really familiar with too. And again, it's okay if you're not familiar with it, but that story is the story of Nicodemus. Now, here's the thing. If there's a verse like John 3, 16, we've heard it a million times, we can quote it, most of us, and, 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 and we can get really familiar with it until the words no longer sink in. Well, the same thing can be true about a story. We can be really familiar with the story. We can be really familiar with how we think the story goes. And I think that's one of those things that I make certain assumptions when I come to the story of Nicodemus, things that I've heard all my life, right? Nicodemus meets with Jesus at night because he's scared of what his fellow Pharisees might think of him, right? And Nicodemus has got all these questions for Jesus. Here's the problem. If we don't stop every once in a while and question our assumptions, We may find uh, that what we're looking at is not necessarily the Bible, but really just our assumptions about the Bible. Because when we look at the text, well, you know what, let's just do that. Now, I'm going to read this whole text, but you're going to have to follow along because it's a long text. And if you're anything like me, when you've got a long text being read, what does your mind do that my mind does? We have a tendency to drift, a little tendency to wander a little bit. So that's why you've got your copy of God's word open in front of you so that you can follow along uh, and not fall asleep, at least not yet, okay? Wait till later in the sermon, if you don't mind. But we look at this, John chapter three, and I'm gonna read verses one through 21. I'd ask you to follow along in your copy of God's word. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to him, and the him there is Jesus, at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I tell you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can these things be? Asked Nicodemus. Go ahead and say that with me. How can these things be? That's an important question. I think we'll need to look at that a little bit. Continuing on, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe me, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. All right, so there's things that we can know about Nicodemus just based on that text. First, he's a Pharisee. Second, he meets with Jesus at night. But you know what we don't see in there? We don't see any statement of the fact that he's meeting with him at night because he's afraid of what the other Pharisees might think. As a matter of fact, some scholars say that the reason Nicodemus meets with him at night is so that he can actually get answers to his questions. In that culture, in that day, oftentimes public questions were, were a means of testing somebody. They were a means of besting them kind of in open public forum debate. And so Nicodemus, by coming to him at night, is signaling to Jesus that he's just curious. He genuinely wants to know. He doesn't want to start a fight. He just wants to know more. It doesn't ultimately matter, but if we make that assumption, then we also have to question, if we question that assumption, then we also have to question, is Nicodemus coming asking any questions at all? He doesn't. All right, look at the text. He comes and all he says is, hey, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. There's no question mark. He's not asking a question. He's making a statement. The questions don't start until Jesus starts speaking. Nicodemus doesn't come to Jesus because he's scared. He doesn't come to Jesus because he's got questions. He comes to Jesus because he's curious. He wants to know more. And Jesus starts talking and Nicodemus gets confused really quick. Nicodemus says, Jesus, you're a teacher from God and I know that. And there's some, certainly some of the conversations being left out. John hasn't recorded every single thing that's been said. Maybe Nicodemus did come with questions first off, but just going off of the text, it looks like he just comes and makes this statement. And then Jesus says, unless someone's born again, he cannot enter the kingdom or see the kingdom of God. Well, what's that have to do with the price of tea in China? All that Nicodemus wanted to do was say, hey, this is what I know about you. And by the mere fact that he is introduced as a Pharisee, we know that there's a lot that Nicodemus knows. But Jesus takes the conversation where it needs to be, not necessarily where it starts. Jesus knows that Nicodemus needs something that every single one of us needs, and that's salvation. All right, last week we talked about worship and we talked about how even though that's not what jumps to our mind, that's really Jesus is digging into that issue of worship there in John chapter two, showing us what it means. Today in this text, what we see is this issue of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Problem is a lot of times, just like those stories, just like Nicodemus's motivations, we assume that we know what we're talking about when we throw out a word like salvation. And usually what we mean by salvation is raise your hand, pray a prayer so that you can go to heaven when you die. Brothers and sisters, that's not the perspective on salvation 
that we get from John chapter three. Salvation is about so much more than where you go when you die. Salvation is about so much more than that. And it's sometimes good for us to question what we think we know. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? I'm going to go out on a limb and it's not a very far out on the limb and it's a pretty big limb. I don't think I'm going to fall because I would venture to say Nicodemus knew his Old Testament better than 99.999% of the people in this room. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. They studied the word of God. They knew their Old Testament inside and out. And Nicodemus probably, and again, we're not going off of the text here, but probably, right, he probably knows that Jesus knows, that he knows a lot. He comes and he says, not only do I know as a Pharisee, not only do I know the Bible, but I know a lot about you, Jesus. I know a lot about you, Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. So we know that you're from God. We know that you're a teacher for no one could perform these signs unless God were with him, right? Nicodemus understands something about Jesus that many people today don't seem to grasp, which is that Jesus did not come to be a miracle worker. There were a bunch of deaf people and blind people and sick people who Jesus never healed. If the point of Jesus's ministry was to come and do miracles, then we could say it's a failure, because he wasn't able to heal everybody. He didn't take care of all of the problems that people were facing. But Nicodemus grasps a really important truth. One that I think we ought to grasp as well. The point of the miracles that Jesus does are not to be ends in themselves. They're to validate the message that he's proclaiming. The point of the miracles is so that people would recognize if he can do that, then we better listen to what he says. Nicodemus gets that. So here we have Nicodemus a Pharisee who knows the Bible better than just about anybody else. Somebody who not only knows the Bible, but is familiar enough with Jesus' ministry to recognize that the point of what Jesus is doing is to bring attention to what he is saying. Somebody who understands that the primary point of Jesus' message is to say, here's the kingdom of God. He gets it. So why does Jesus then say, you've got to be born again? Because salvation is not dependent on what we know. Oops, sorry, wrong one. Salvation is not dependent on what we know. This is a really important point. Because now some of you, this is good news because you don't know a whole lot. But for others of you, this is really bad news because you know a whole lot. Right? If you've been sitting in church all your life, and you go to Sunday school and you read your Bible every day, you could be really tempted to think that what you know is what saves you. This is a particular concern for preachers like me. Right? I have somebody asked me the other day just how many years of schooling I have under my belt. Now, brace yourselves for this. I have 14 years of post high school education experience. Now, most people can get it done in seven. It took me 14. <laughs> so that's no great shakes. It just took me a lot longer than normal people, right? But, but 14 years of studying the Bible, four years of Bible college, a three-year master degree that I managed to cram into 10 years, yes. 
And every once in a while, I open my mouth and seminary comes out. Now, have you guys ever made something that you were really excited about? Like, like, like you've, you've created, if you're a baker, like if you ever bake something, you're like, oh, you gotta try this, right? And then you dislocate your shoulder, patting yourself on the back, right? Like you make something, you're like, oh, this is incredible. You gotta check this out. That was me this week. Now, I've said this before. My wife reads my sermons every week. This is for your benefit, okay? Just so we're clear. Every week, I ask my wife to read my sermons. This week, I was really excited because I had that defi- had definition of salvation, and I was super excited about it. So she reads the, reads the sermon. I'm like, all right, what'd, what'd you think? Like, look at this thing that I made. I made a definition of salvation. And she's like, I went to the same school you did, and I don't know what you're t- talking about. This was my definition of salvation. Salvation is the removal of God's wrath from us, the reclamation of God's purpose for us, and the restoration of God's union with us. She's like, yeah, you're going to have to do better than that. And so after grumbling about the fact that my wife didn't like my definition, I'm like, she's right. I should probably go back to the drawing on board on this. And this is what I came up with. Salvation is God sparing us, changing us, and joining us. Can we all just take a moment and appreciate my wife and the service that she has performed for all of you today? All right. God is the one who accomplishes salvation, but he doesn't just do it by sparing us. He doesn't just do it by taking away the punishment from us. And that's usually where our understanding of salvation stops. We think that God's salvation means I don't go to hell when I die. God's salvation means that, yes, but it means so much more than that too. God has spared us. But as we see Jesus talking about, he has not only spared us, he's changing us. And he's joining us. This, this is good news. And this is why it's so important that we understand salvation is not dependent on what we know. Salvation is not dependent on what we know. Nicodemus knows a lot of Bible, knows a lot about Jesus. Some of us know a lot about the Bible, know a lot about Jesus. You don't have to go to 14 years of school to be saved. You don't have to read your Bible every morning to be saved. Salvation's not dependent on what you know. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus can't get this. You can almost see the quizzical look on his face. Wait, Jesus, if a man is old, how can he go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus is like, not what I'm talking about, bro. Not what I'm talking about. You're not gonna be able to wrap your mind around this. That's actually what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, look, if you need to understand salvation, you need to understand this. Unless someone's born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. There's been a lot of discussion about what that means. Been a lot of people who have thought about what the water is, what the spirit is. I think that what Jesus is saying is unless you've been born physically of the water, right, the amniotic fluid there in the womb, unless you've been born of water, physically born, and then born of the spirit, spiritually born, you can't see the kingdom of God. Well, I don't understand that, Jesus. 
Right, I get that, Nicodemus. I get that you don't understand that. And he begins to describe it. He says, look, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but it's still there. You don't understand where it came from, where it's going, but it's still there. Can you see the wind? You can't. Now, now let me illustrate this a different way, okay? I love Jesus' illustration there, the wind, but how many of you are pursuing a degree in higher education yourself, attending that prestigious university, YouTube? (laughs) Any fellow YouTube university students, I'm working on projects at my house. Guess where I'm going to learn how to do these things I don't know how to do? YouTube. Now, why am I going to YouTube? Because some guy that I don't know who has no credentials whatsoever has done the thing that I'm trying to do before me and his house looks like it hasn't burned down yet. I might as well try it. You can go to YouTube and you can learn just about anything. And I think that's a really great thing and a really terrible thing too. You can go to YouTube and you can find a video on how to do heart surgery. If I watch the video, will you let me do yours? (laughs) Knowing something, even understanding something, does not qualify you for the thing. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards. You can know about Jesus's ministry. You could know about his message. You could have memorized entire gospels and still not qualify for salvation. Salvation is not dependent on you. It's not based on what you know. This is really good news for us. It's also good news. We'll talk about it a little later. It's also good news that salvation is not dependent on what you do. It's not dependent on what you know. It's not dependent on what you do. So, okay, what is salvation dependent on then? Well, that's what Jesus is trying to point out. Right? He says, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear it sounds. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can these things be? Like if I can't see this new birth you're talking about, if it's spiritual and I can't really understand, I can see its effects, but I can't really see the thing, then how in the world can I have any sort of confidence in this, Jesus? If salvation's not dependent on what I know, If salvation is not dependent on what I do, then what in the world is salvation dependent on? Jesus. Now, punctuation matters too. While I'm being a nerd, I might as well just be a nerd all the way. And I forgot, can anybody spot the typo up there? So you'll, you'll see that after salvation depends on Jesus, there's a period there, right? That's really good, good catch, by the way. I didn't have that there in the first service. But somebody sent me a text and, and they came up to me after the service, after the first service, and they're like, hey, I fixed it for you. Check your messages. And I, and I open it up and it was salvation depends on Jesus, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I really like that. Can you do that real quick? Just how, just how quick are you? Not that quick. Okay, never mind. Right, but, but this is punctuation matters, y'all. If if salvation doesn't depend on what I know and it doesn't depend on what I do and it depends on Jesus, then there is every reason for me to rejoice in that. There is every reason for me to be excited about this. And, And Jesus makes this point to Nicodemus in a really strange way. Most of us familiar with the story of Nicodemus. How many of you know the story that Jesus references next? Look at this. He says, look, I've come from heaven. This goes back, John 1, he talks about the word being with God, the word was God, 
right? He talks about the word taking on flesh and dwelling in our midst, right? That's this Jesus we're talking about. I've come from heaven. I've told you these things. You need to believe me. But then look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. What snake? What wilderness? We need to go back to Numbers 21. And here's what I'm going to make you do. I don't normally do this. Kamar would be so proud of me. I'm going to make you turn to a second passage in your Bible. Turn to Numbers chapter 21, because this is one that you may not be as familiar with. Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to be looking beginning in verse 4. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying to Nicodemus, look, you're a teacher of Israel. You should know this. You should already understand this. And then he cites as the reason he should know that, this particular story. Numbers chapter 21, uh, looking at verse, beginning in verse 4. Then they, the Israelites, sent out, sent out, set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. Now, this is the wilderness wanderings, right? This is, this is Israel. They're, they've left Egypt. They've left slavery. They're going to the promised land, right? That's the setting. And along the way, they act just like you and I would act if we were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, basically saying, are we there yet? Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water. We detest this wretched food. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. This is why we shouldn't be complaining. Sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. And whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and recovered. All right, so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, just like that. He uses those words, just like that. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. How come you didn't understand this, Nicodemus? Now, let's step back a little bit. How many of us would have got it? How many of us would have looked at Numbers 21 and been like, oh, we're waiting for Jesus to be lifted up just like the snake was lifted up? Probably not. And we didn't know the Old Testament nearly as well as Nicodemus did. But nonetheless, the point holds true. Israel, God says over and over and over, you weren't saved because you were the greatest of the people. You weren't saved because you were the most obedient people. No, 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 you were saved because you were the least among the people, the most stubborn, the most pig-headed people. I gave you grace you did not deserve. Do you think the Israelites didn't understand that? Oh, they absolutely understood that. They absolutely understood that God, in, in choosing them, had not recognized any sort of quality in them. And yet, just like you and I, oftentimes they would get that backwards. They would, they would think that maybe, maybe God loved them because they did all the good things. No, God loved them and called them to do the good things. Nicodemus knows this story, but he doesn't know the point yet. 
See, the point is this. Jesus says, just as Moses, when Moses is in the desert leading the people of God and they complain and cry out and then the serpents come and that's the punishment of God coming on the people of God. Moses intercedes on their behalf before the Lord. Guess what Jesus does for us? Intercedes on our behalf before the Lord. Now, God doesn't say, Moses, go back to all of the Israelites and tell them to make their own bronze snake and put it up on their own pole. No, he tells Moses, you do the work. Moses does the work. And guess what Jesus is saying? I'm going to do the work. Jesus does the work. And, and as a matter of fact, the only contribution that Israel makes to their salvation is to look. That's what's so amazing about that story in Numbers. And that's what he wants to draw Nicodemus' attention to. The Israelites didn't need to know how it worked that looking at a bronze serpent on a pole could save them from the bite that they just experienced. They just needed to believe that it worked. Because what God was looking for was that response of faith that trusted to his provision rather to the, than to their understanding or to their actions. They looked and were healed. Jesus says, in the same way, what saves you, Nicodemus, is that belief in me, that trust in me, that look of faith at me. Just as Moses lifted the snake up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Salvation doesn't depend on what you do. It just depends on that look of faith. That is literally the least that you can contribute to your salvation. The least you can do short of doing nothing is just to believe. And that's what Jesus says is all that God requires. Believe, look at the son of man lifted up, you will be saved. Salvation depends on Jesus. Period, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. This is good news. Now, did you catch what else it said there? What happens when the Israelites look at the snake? They're healed. And then they proceed to wander some more and whine some more and die. Now, what happens when we look at the son of man lifted up? If anyone believes he has eternal life. When does that eternal life start? Now. Now. Now, this may seem like a pointless exercise, right? If something lasts forever, does it really matter when it started? Yeah, it does. Because so many of us as Christians live as if our salvation only applies after we die. We assume that this eternal life is going to start once we die. Do you see the inherent contradiction in that statement? If you're waiting to die for eternal life to start, you don't understand what life is. And you certainly can't understand what Paul says when he says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? For the Christ follower, the fact that looking at Jesus begins eternal life in that moment of faith, in that moment of belief, that changes everything. 
we're not waiting to be spared from the judgment. We're not just getting fire insurance. It starts now. All right, so full tilt nerd. We've, we've covered definitions. We've covered punctuation. Time for a history lesson. I'm sure that as residents and citizens of this great nation, you all are intimately familiar with the United States Constitution. So pop quiz. What rights does the Constitution of the United States guarantee for its citizens? Trick question. Correct answer is all of them. There's literally an article that says, hey, if we forgot to mention any rights, the people have those too. There's literally nothing excluded from the Constitution. And that, those rights don't wait to start until you die. Those rights don't wait to start until you hit 40. Those rights are inherent by virtue of your citizenship. Now that is a paltry example from a mere human political entity that will one day cease to be. Jesus is making a point about a kingdom that never ends. Jesus is making a point about a life that never ends. Why in the world would we assume that we're waiting for our rights to begin? If looking at Jesus in faith starts eternal life, then all of the rights that are pertaining to that eternal life are ours right now. This means that when we see the inauguration of Jesus' reign, when we see the uh, new heavens and the new earth, and we see God himself dwelling with them, that starts now. When we see that God himself is their light and that the chaos of the world has been banished from their experience, that starts now. When we see that we are destined to dwell in splendor, in glory, in holiness, in righteousness, that starts now. This may seem like a no-brainer to you, but there should be a pretty strong objection coming if it doesn't. How come my loved one died? Right? If, if heaven is where, if the kingdom of heaven is where God wipes every tear from their eyes, why do I still grieve? Right? If, if joy inexpressible is to be my reality, why is it that I feel so down right now? If holiness and righteousness are meant to be my inheritance and I'm experiencing that beginning right now, how come I'm still struggling with the same old sin? Ah, salvation is God sparing us. Salvation is God changing us. Salvation is God joining us, but it doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen all at once. But the promise, the hope, is that these things are a reality. That these things will be true even as they are true. It's already true, but it's not yet fully realized. Jesus wants 
Nicodemus to understand, if you look at the son in faith, you have eternal life starting right now. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's good news. That starts now. And we get to spend the rest of our eternal life seeing it come to fruition. So many times the kingdom is talked about as a seed. The most frustrating thing to me about gardening, and I know it's four degrees outside and nobody's thinking about gardening right now, but the most frustrating thing to me about gardening is the fact that I have no patience. I am a two-week gardener at best. Plant the seed, boring waiting. Plant comes up, yay, boring waiting. Look, guys, the kingdom of heaven is like that seed. It's been planted, but it's still growing. Our salvation is a reality like that seed. New life has begun, but it's still growing. We're not there yet, but that doesn't mean we don't let it continue. If we have a definition of salvation that means eternal life starts when I die and keeps me out of hell, then we're gonna miss the best parts of our salvation. Salvation is not just God sparing us, it's God changing us. Look at this next. It says that in uh, verse 17, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Salvation grants eternal life. It starts now, it's growing. But in the meantime, we need to understand we are set free from condemnation. Do you think God is unaware that you are not what you should be yet? He is very well aware, I assure you. He still loved you. Do you understand that when you believe you are set free from condemnation? Uh, let's, let's try to bring this in. So imagine with me that you're a criminal. Okay, that's, that's the kind of word that condemn normally fits in. It's kind of that legal uh, word. It should make us picture a courtroom. So let's, let's just pretend that you and I are the criminals standing in front of the judge, right? Now to keep this from being too dramatic, let's imagine like you didn't kill anybody, okay? Let, let, let's say you, you're, you've been called up in front of the judge because you stole something, right? You stole something. Now, would you rather that the judge looks at you and says, because you stole that pencil, that million dollars, that whatever, fill in the blank, you are sentenced, or would you rather have the judge say, because you stole that pencil, that million dollars, you are condemned. See, we use those words often interchangeably, but they're really important that we understand exactly what's going on. For a judge to sentence somebody means a description of their punishment, right? When, when, when we're describing a punishment, then we can kind of wrap our heads around it. To be sentenced is like, okay, I got 100 hours community service. Wasn't even that nice of a pencil, doggone it, right? I got 100 hours of community service. I got, I got five years behind bars, right? I've been sentenced. I know what my punishment is. He uses the word condemn. To stand condemned doesn't deal with the punishment. 
deals with the guilt, deals with the person, not the penalty. To be condemned is to recognize that whether I stole a pencil or a million dollars, I am morally guilty as a thief. To condemn somebody is to pass a moral judgment on them. And Jesus says that salvation frees us from that. Salvation frees us from condemnation. You and I are not what we should be yet. But Jesus has freed us from condemnation. The fact that we do not yet measure up is not the end of our story. It's just part of our story. We are freed from that ultimate condemnation. Now, we may still have to do our community service. You and I still have to bear the consequences of our sins in this life. But Jesus says the eternal destination, the eternal consequences of those sins are done away with because our moral guilt is set aside. But it's not set aside, it's set upon. It's set upon Jesus who's lifted up. And when we look at him with faith, what we're freed from is condemnation. You steal a pencil, you might still get your community service. You steal a million dollars, you might get more than just some community service. Do they really actually sentence people to community service for stealing pencils? I hope not. Because I got some work to do if that's the case. How many times I walk out with a pen from the office, you know? I think they mean for that to happen though because they put their name as like advertising, right? Maybe I'm just trying to justify myself. But look, Jesus frees us from condemnation. He recognizes we're not where we're supposed to be yet. And he loves us anyways, but also not the end of the story. See, a lot of times we'll stop there. Well, okay, I have been set free from condemnation. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. If anyone believes he's not condemned. All right, good news. I'm not condemned. Now I'm just going to sit back, relax, coast my way through until this thing is finally realized. That's not what Jesus wants either. Jesus intends for this freeing us from condemnation to begin to change us. He intends for it to change us. Salvation frees us from condemnation, but it frees us for transformation. Salvation is the means by which God says to us, you no longer bear that guilt judgment. Jesus has taken on the wrath that you were destined for. Jesus has taken on the penalty that was yours by right. The wages of sin is death and Jesus died even though he hadn't sinned. He did that for you, he did that for me, but he didn't do that so that we can just keep doing the thing that put him there. He didn't do it so that we could just continue to walk the exact same way we did before we got our fire insurance. He did it so that we would begin to change. So that the eternal life would start now. And that others would see transformation in us. That Jesus would be seen by those who see us. That what would happen in us would begin to prove the gospel message just like Jesus' work proved his message for Nicodemus. That the transformation being wrought inside of us would prove to others that Jesus is really in the business still of changing lives today. The number one objection people make when you go to share the gospel with them, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Do you know why they say that? Because they're right. We claim a gospel that says, in spite of what you've done, God loves you. 
And then we say, because of what Jesus has done, God can change your life. And then we proceed to not be changed. And the world proceeds to say, well, if the second part's not true, the first part probably isn't either. Legitimate conclusion. Jesus is not saying, I came, Nicodemus, so that you could just quit doing all this stuff. He's not saying, Nicodemus, just sit back, relax, I got this, even though he does. He's saying, if this is the real salvation, not only have you been granted eternal life, that eternal life starts now. You're no longer condemned for not being there, but you are meant to be getting somewhere. Anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. That means there's works. And it means it's clear we didn't do them. God shows up when his people are changed. God saves his people in order to change them, in order that the world might see him through them. This is an essential part of the gospel message that we have lost. There should be something unique about us. There should be transformation taking place in us because of who Christ is and what he has done. Nicodemus needs to understand you're not saved because of what you know or what you do, but being saved, you will be changed. We are saved for transformation. We are freed from an old way of life that demanded that we wring pleasure out of every single moment possible before we die because this is all we get. It's our only hope. We are freed from that way of life to a life that now says, from here until forever, God is with me. From here until forever, what matters most is that he would find pleasure in me. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, said John Piper. And it's so true with scripture. When we show the transformation that's been wrought in us, God is pleased. But more than that, God is with us in such a way that other people can recognize it. What happens when a Christ follower sins is not condemnation. What happens when a Christ follower sins is a breaking of their experience of fellowship with God. That's what, when we talk about grieving the Holy Spirit. We talk about sickness and sin that leads to death. Over and over in the New Testament, you find these things and we don't have categories for it because we've made salvation just about what happens when we die. And Jesus' point is, what happens when you die is important. It's vital. I will grant eternal life. Don't worry. But something's meant to change now. It's meant to reflect different today. God will work through his people. And the world will know that we have been changed. Brothers and sisters, what's the case for us? For you, for me, where are we at in that?